Welcome to Pure Curiosity. This is your host, Iris McAlpin, and I invite you to join me in this exploration of what it means to be human in our modern world. Here you may find answers, but I hope you'll find even more questions and allow curiosity to guide you forward. Let's begin. Hi, Amanda. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to chat with you. I've had a busy day, so it's like nice to to get to chat, you know? <laughs> I've really been looking forward to this conversation because I feel like we're going to dig into some stuff that I haven't really talked about on this podcast. But before we do that and jump into that, I would love for you just to introduce yourself to our listeners who may not be familiar with your work yet. Yeah. So I'm Amanda E. White. Um, my handle on Instagram is at therapy for women. I'm a licensed therapist. Um, I'm also sober and I am an author. My book, uh, is coming out on January 4th. It's called not drinking tonight. And, um, I really specialize in my clinical work on substance use disorders, um, working with women and eating disorders. Mm, Awesome. Great. Okay. Well, let's, let's start with your book. Um, yeah. And just this topic of drinking, this is something I'm really interested in because I've had my own battles with, with alcohol over the years. Maybe we can just start with what started you getting interested in this topic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so essentially personally, right. So I'm in recovery. I've I've been sober now for about, for a little over seven years and I had, you know, like a lot of people, I drank a lot during college. Um, the drinking escalated. I had an eating disorder throughout high school and I knew that my eating disorder was a problem. It was very identified. I struggled with bulimia. So I knew that wasn't okay. Um, but alcohol was really something that everyone else was doing. So I thought it was this great thing. Um, I had a lot of social anxiety growing up, so it felt like friends in a bottle to me. It was just this like amazing relief of I can get out of my head. I can be cool. Um, And I just started drinking more in college. Um, I also ended up getting addicted to Adderall in college because that was great for my eating disorder. Um, you know, I thought that that really helped with my appetite and all of that stuff. And after I graduated college, I really lost a lot of my friends because of my addiction, which just really spiraled out of control. I was really depressed for a long time. And I was, every time I was able to make progress in my eating disorder, I kept relapsing when I drank and I would get caught in this cycle of making progress And then I would get drunk and I would relapse in my eating disorder. And I wanted to be a therapist. I was in grad school at the time and I really knew I needed to be in recovery from my eating disorder to be able to do the work I wanted to do. Um, And I had a therapist who said, why don't you, you know, stop drinking for 30 days. I tried it. I wasn't able to do it. Um, And I just kept struggling with that, that relapse cycle until finally I realized, and I like to say, I mean, it wasn't my worst drunk. It wasn't a bottom even. I'd been in way worse places, but the catalyst happened to be the last time I drank. I was a yoga teacher at the time and I taught yoga completely drunk. I don't remember teaching yoga. And 
it was a bit of a wake-up call for me that I wasn't going to be able to become a therapist and really do the work that I wanted to do if this kept happening. Mm. Okay, I'm going to, like, pick my jaw up off the floor at just the level of, like, overlap in our stories. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so much overlap. Wow. Yeah, there's there's a lot we could talk about probably about the overlap of bulimia and drinking because there's just yes. so much there. Yes. But I'd be curious for you, because it sounds like, you know, you you had some experience of trying to stop yes. and it didn't work. And then there was this wake-up call. And so I'd be curious, like, after that wake-up call, how did things start to shift after that? Like, what, what made the difference for you in terms of really being able to address this effectively for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, it was an interesting position because... Um, like I said, it wasn't the worst drunk I'd ever had. And I really struggled a lot with calling myself an alcoholic because while I absolutely was drinking too much, when I was thinking about stopping drinking or I was trying to, people would tell me I was being dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, even my parents were like, Amanda, you aren't an alcoholic. You don't yeah. need to stop drinking. Maybe you're making this. The big thing people used to say is maybe you're making this harder on yourself. Mm-hmm. You already have an eating disorder. Why are you trying to do more? And I get where they were coming from because especially with my eating disorder, I was also kind of orthorexic for a time. So I was very notorious for cutting out huge <laughs> food groups I was a raw vegan for a time. So my parents thought that this was just like an offshoot of that. And they were kind of like, why don't you just drink less? But I think what isn't talked about and realized is that um, alcohol isn't like food. Alcohol isn't like an eating – like it is, but it's not – alcohol is addictive. (laughs) So it's really hard to moderate. Um. So yeah, for me, I was lucky that I was already in therapy, intensive therapy for my eating disorder. I was in group therapy for my eating disorder. So I happened to know some people who were all, who were in recovery from um, substance use and weren't drinking and went to AA. And um, that's what I did to start. And I was really fortunate. I didn't know whether I was an alcoholic. I didn't like the word, but I just went because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and I was lucky to develop a really good, you know, support system from there and group of friends. So even though I don't go to AA anymore and I transitioned away from it after a couple years, it was the foundation in terms of just having support. Mm, yeah. Which made a big difference for me. Well, you, you touched on something that feels really important to take some time with here, which is some of the reactions that people have when you started addressing your relationship with alcohol. And this is something I've experienced myself. If you tell people you're not drinking, or if you tell people you think, okay, maybe there's a problem here. It sounds like your experience was similar to mine where people are like, oh, what are you talking about? This is yeah. fine. Like, what What do you, what do you mean? Or like, this is just a phase, right? Or yeah, you're going to drink again, right? <laughs> like all of these things. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective on on why this can be so challenging for people to to deal with. Like it's challenging for us as the person who's trying to stop, but then also challenging for the people in our environment. Yeah, I think it comes from because alcohol is so normalized and expected that people often 
either, they, they often project onto you. They assume a big thing too is people become defensive because they feel like, well, if you are stopping drinking, you probably think that I should stop drinking. Right. Or if you think you're drinking too much and I drink as much or more than you, then what does that mean about me? Yeah, I think that is a huge part of it. It is so, so, so normalized in our culture. And I think there's something too about like, it's almost a trust thing where if if we're getting together in groups and some people are going to be drinking and blowing off steam and like saying and doing silly things that maybe they wouldn't do sober and you're the one sober person there who's going to remember everything. I think sometimes (laughs) we were like, oh shoot, like, do I need to you know, watch what I'm going to do or watch what I'm going to say because this person is here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing about it is, you know, alcohol is kind of the only drug that is really normalized and expected for us to drink. And part of that stems from just the history of the word alcoholic, of what, you know, substance use used to look like. I mean, there was no treatment for people with alcohol use disorders until AA came around. It was the first type of treatment. If you, It's so intertwined with mental health and how people used to be essentially locked in asylums when they didn't know what to do with people. Um, and because it is so expected we drink, it seems like there are options where you either are an alcoholic and you should never drink, or you're not an alcoholic and you should drink. And if you don't pick one of those two, you're a loser and you're weird. Thank you so much for bringing that up because, (laughs) yes, it's like there's these two camps. I feel like, in general, everyone lately likes to think about things in very black and white terms. But, yeah, let's talk about that for a second because there are a lot of people that just don't want to drink because they don't like how it feels or they don't like how they act when they're on it. I mean, there's a million different reasons why people don't drink. But this is something I know you, you talk about online, like... What are some of these gray areas? Yeah. I mean, I think people don't recognize how much mental health is really tied in with drinking. Like if someone has trauma, which I know you specialize in and talk a lot about, it can be really triggering to drink and not have as much, you know, control over the situation. Maybe they had something happen when they were intoxicated. Um, That's going to definitely, you know, be a difficult situation that might make them uncomfortable. I think a lot of people know they have a family history of alcohol abuse in some capacity and they're nervous to go down that road. Some people just genuinely don't like the feeling of it, which also is totally acceptable. I mean, there are religious reasons. And I think for so long, you know, my whole thing, it's why I called the book Not Drinking Tonight, is we also don't need a reason either. And I want to kind of come away from this idea that you can only not drink and turn down a drink if you have a good enough reason. Absolutely. Yeah. And some of the things that people ask, I mean, I I don't think they are meaning to be triggering or difficult, but it's like, like, I just remember, for example, I was going out to parties and stuff and not drinking and... I was also trying to get pregnant and like wasn't able to for a long time. Yeah. And so every time I would go to a party and I wasn't drinking, people would be like, oh, are you pregnant? (laughs) It's like, oh my God, I wish Mm. like we've been trying for over a year. Like, 
you know, so people ask, I think, well-meaning questions. Yeah. But there's this idea that we have to have a reason, like you're saying, like there has to be some tangible reason or you're completely sober. Right. Right. And it's, yeah, it's this binary. Yeah. And then even sometimes, right, if you're totally sober, people are like worried about you. Right. (laughs) And they're weird. (laughs) And people like, I mean, it's something that used to happen to me is if I would be drinking like a glass of sparkling water with a, with lime or something like that, like people would be really alarmed or nervous. Or if I post like on my Instagram, um, you know, a a mocktail that I made, unless I specify (laughs) that it's, you know, alcohol free, people will be like, are you okay? Is everything right? Okay? <laughs> yeah. So it's this weird monitoring too, um, uh, which yeah. you know again is tied to the reason. Yeah. Well, I would be curious to know what all has shifted for you since you've made this commitment to yourself. Yeah, I mean, my life has changed. I mean, it's been a long time, so yeah. it's hard to attribute absolutely everything to it. But I think for me. For so long, everything, I just avoided my emotions so much. I did not know how to deal with them, how to process them. I was terrified of conflict. Um, I really just, I had so much anxiety and I dealt with most things in life by avoiding them until I absolutely had to. And for me, there was, there's so much power. And even there's power now when I can go out and have a good time and not be reliant on alcohol or a substance to feel good about myself or relax. And that I think is one of the biggest, I mean, there's tons of benefits, but that's something that still to this day is just such a great feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of confidence that comes from that, especially, yeah, as someone who also had pretty crippling social anxiety for a long time. And and I will say when I was learning how to be social without drinking at first, it was really hard. And I don't know yes. if that was your experience too, but it was very hard. I think, I mean, it was my biggest reason that I didn't want to stop was I thought that I wouldn't have friends. I wouldn't make friends. I mean, my parents said things to me like, how are you going to ever get married? Oh, <laughs> if <boy>. you don't <laughs> drink? Um, <sighs> how are you going to date? And those are huge things because we are taught the way to make friends is to go to social events and social events means drinking and everyone who wants to go on a date wants to go on a date, you know, and get a drink. So we don't even recognize that there's options sometimes and we can do something different. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this whole, well, sober curious movement um, yeah. in moderation. Because I'm someone who, just full transparency, like I do drink occasionally. It's very, yeah. well, obviously not at all right now. but um, <laughs> And I'm curious how you feel about moderation as a practice or if you even, because some people don't think that that's a real thing and yeah. I get why. I'd just be interested to hear your yeah. thoughts on that. So I actually do believe in moderation. I think it depends on the person. And that's what I'm really clear on. Um, Like my husband drinks alcohol. I don't think that he has a problem. He doesn't drink that, that often, but sometimes he does. And I mean, he's aware kind of like me that it's an addictive substance, Um, but which can, you know, just make you, it's, I think it just can make you um, 
not be yourself sometimes or do things that are like, you know, silly or whatever that you regret that you wouldn't do if you weren't drinking. Um, so for me, the biggest thing is I think moderation is possible and I don't think that it's possible for everyone. And I think there are a lot of factors that make it possible or not possible. Um, I think it's family history. I think it's how much you drank in the past and for how long. I completely believe if we look at just habits and brain chemistry and the way you, way your brain is wired, if you've been drinking like weekly or daily for a significant period of time, your brain is so used to it, it is going to be extremely difficult to moderate. Yeah. That, I think yeah. trauma, mental health, all these factors really impact whether whether it's possible, I think. And for me, what I come to also is it's also just more work. Like moderation is constant decision fatigue. It's saying, <laughs> yeah. how much am I going to drink? When am I going to drink? What am I going to drink? When am I going to stop? Like, who will I drink around with? Where will I drink? All of these decisions and that I think is something people don't think about where for me, I was always like, well, I don't want to totally stop drinking because that's, you know, extreme and I want freedom just like I had with intuitive eating, right? To like have some, but for me, actually the freedom is not thinking about what I'm going to drink in the same way freedom with, you know, my eating disorder is not thinking about and being obsessed with what I'm going to eat. They just have, they're just kind of opposites in how you find recovery, I think. I'm glad you brought in the intuitive eating thing because you touched on this earlier. And I think this is really important too, is that it's not the same. Like people talk about food addiction all the time, which I could go on a whole thing about. I'm yeah, sure you too. could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's talk about it for a little bit because I think yeah. a lot of people do still think it's the same or that like sugar is the same as you know, everything else, um, like cocaine or alcohol. And it's just, that's not the case, but I would love for you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that I personally also get frustrated about sometimes. And it's part of really why I wanted to write this book is there isn't another book that I know of out there. That's a book about sobriety that talks about the overlap of these two in a way that isn't demonizing sugar, um, or, essentially sometimes breeding and eating disorder with orthorexia and, you know, it is, I mean, and when I've done research, I mean, the statistics are alarming of the amount of co-occurring eating disorders and substance use disorders are about 40%. Mm. Like it's crazy. I know personally so many women, uh, professionally, personally, who I've worked with. It's just so, so, so common, especially when one of the first symptoms that sometimes happens when you stop drinking is you might gain weight. You might eat more because especially you've probably been malnourished in some capacity, (laughs) right? Seriously. So yeah, I think that 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 was really, really important to me to talk about how they're not the same. You know, all the the sugar studies and, and things like that, they haven't been done in humans. They've been done on rats. They're not, <laughs> they're not the same thing. And if you think about, I think about it in this way of what I was addicted to in my eating disorder was not food. It felt that way, but I was addicted to the feeling of being in control mm-hmm. of my food. Yeah. I was addicted to the feeling that I could change my body shape. 
I was addicted to the feeling that I could eat the food that I wanted and not have to get full or deal with the repercussions of that. Where alcohol is actually an addictive substance. And yeah, there are other things that come along with it, like chaos and other things. But the thing that actually is the addiction is the substance in that case. Yeah, I think that's such an important distinction because it does feel, I mean, if anyone's listening to this and you feel like you're addicted to food, I think, you know, Amanda and I both can relate to that feeling. And what you said is absolutely right. I mean, our bodies are like food is what we need to survive. It's very different. We don't need alcohol to survive. Yes, yes. And even if we look at, um, right, I mean, I do some history in my book about evolution and how we even came to being able to drink. I mean, we weren't even, there was a genetic mutation, they think, that happened that allowed us to be able to metabolize alcohol. And it happened because of um, rotting fruit. That is how alcohol was first produced. And that was how we developed that because fruit was really valuable and to be able to eat rotten fruit was a good thing. But even if you think about that, I mean, we weren't designed to be drinking tons of, like ingesting a lot of alcohol. I mean, there's very little alcohol in a piece of rotting fruit. I mean, even if you look at the history of alcohol and the way that beer used to be made and wine used to be made is extremely different from the alcohol that we were drinking now. I mean, back in the day, they used to drink beer instead of water because it was more purified. Right. Yeah. Oh, maybe you're, I'm completely blanking on the author of this book. It's a book called Drunk. Um, Hmm. where he talks about the history of alcohol. And it's something that really struck me about that is that it's alcohol is certainly not new in human history, but this phenomenon of, of drinking liquor is very new. Yes. And also drinking by yourself is extremely new in human history. Absolutely. Cause I think the way I sort of relate to it, like I will not drink unless it's like in a celebratory sort of yeah. way. If if I'm drinking because I'm sad, that's not a good, like that's just a bad formula. <laughs> and so Absolutely. that's a relatively new phenomenon that people are using alcohol in this way by themselves to self-medicate or to, to numb feelings of pain. It's historically been more of this gathering force in the celebratory right. experience. And community and sharing yeah. and... And to your point, I mean, that is one of the things I recommend if people want to moderate is never drinking alone, not using alcohol to cope with emotions, um, planning out when they're going to drink. So not doing it impulsively as a response to a stressful day. Um, And yeah, the other thing to know in regards to what you just said is alcohol is also a myopic drug. And what that means is that it expands your current emotional state. So it doesn't just like make you happy or change your emotional state. It expands it. And while that can be positive, if you are having a celebration or something like that, the drunker you get, the less control you have also over its effects. So it's Mm -hmm. why if you start out having a good night celebrating, but then you stub your toe or you say something stupid and get into a fight that will expand and make you way more reactive and things will feel like, you know, way bigger of a deal if your night turns also. For sure. And then, yeah, there's just so many 
ramifications aside from just like the physical hangover, there can be that like social hangover or emotional hangover of like, oh crap, like what did I say last night? Or, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And that chips away at our absolutely health as well. Not to mention just the physiological effects can make us feel anxious and depressed and Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was the biggest thing for me is it was so exhausting. I kept hurting friendships. I kept saying I would do something and not do it or do the opposite. I just had like no integrity with my word. So I had no confidence at all. And I'm really a really big believer that one of the best things we can do for our self-worth is to like not break promises to ourselves. Even if we set really small goals, I think that's a much better way to go about it than set these huge goals and then kind of not being able to meet them. Because the best way to trust yourself is to trust, is to build trust by keeping your word to yourself. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Something I'd be interested to know, you mentioned that initially at least, you know, some of your relationships or like people in your life weren't just like, yay, you're, I'm so glad you're not drinking. <laughs> there was some pushback. And so I'm, I'm just interested to hear a little bit more yeah. about that arc. Like how did people respond longer term? Did people come around? Yeah, people definitely came around. Um, I think my parents were worried that I would fail or it didn't work. And then I would be upset again. Um, in terms of friendships, though, I did have people push back and not like it. I had some people that were very defensive of their own drinking. And I also had people who were supportive, but I realized that we had absolutely nothing in common anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does happen. And I think it is something people can be nervous about, rightly so. Um, but in my experience, it was hard in the beginning for sure and was confronting to see relationships shift and change, but I have so much deeper, more lasting, authentic relationships with people now than ever would have been possible because I wasn't actually able to be honest with people. All we had in common, you know, I did things that I didn't like to do. I would go to sports games and pretend to be really interested in sports and I (laughs) absolutely hate sports. (laughs) So now I actually do things that I enjoy doing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's so, yeah, I relate to that too. Um, Well, I think there's this idea that alcohol facilitates connection and maybe that's true in some cases, but I feel like more than that, it just masks disconnection. Yes. I completely agree with that. Um, Catherine Gray, who's an amazing author, she has, I quote her in my book and she has this line that says, um, Alcohol is like uh, a glue stick. Like it's really quick. It'll glue you together. And like sober friendships are like cement. They're Mm -hmm. slower to build. They take long, but they're deeper and more lasting. And I think that's a really beautiful metaphor to explain it. Uh, That's perfect. Yeah, I've never heard that, but yeah, makes a lot of sense because it's, it can be really fun, obviously connecting over alcohol, but there's going to be, what is the word? like the substance of the the connection may be less. We're not going to be. And I think, yeah. And I think too, we've all experienced that, like of you like feel like, oh, this is my best friend now after a night. And then you like see them the next day or you think about talking to them the next day. At least I have the experience very viscerally. I remember of like, 
being on my college campus and I'd like bonded with this one girl in the bathroom and you think you're best <laughs> friends all night and then you're walking around campus and you see them and you both don't know if you should like even say hi <laughs> after that because you don't actually know each other and you don't even, you know, remember anything that you talked about. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and that makes me think about this sort of bigger question that I don't expect you to have the answer to, but I think it's interesting to consider is like, what is going on for our youth that mm. drinking to the point of blackout is so common on college campuses? Yeah, that is a, that is a deep question that I can only give hypotheses for. I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on. I think the media portrays a huge role. I mean, I am always just shocked at, and I, I look for it, so I see it a lot, of just the way alcohol is portrayed in TV shows and movies and online. And I talk in my book actually about really how alcohol sells, like big alcohol sells us this idea that if we drink, we're better versions of ourselves, we're happier, we're more outgoing. And really there's so much overlap I see between diet culture and alcohol culture. Uh, they're both selling us this idea that, you know, if we lost this weight or we drank this product or we wore this, you know, clothes or we bought the, buy this makeup, we'll be happy finally and we'll be, right. you know, outgoing and all of our problems will be solved. So I, I think part of it is also just, you know, kids are exposed to more and more and more media these days. And it's just... I mean, I'm really worried about social media and stuff like that. I think people yeah. aren't living in the, you know, the way filters happen on your, you know, with kids and stuff like that. Um, and I think it's exacerbating, you know, mental health issues. I think also I did research in my book talking about just, you know, there's a huge issue with loneliness. Obviously, the pandemic just really compounded that. But people used to not live so like so disconnected from each other. You know, we live in single families now, which isn't quite, you know, it's still pretty new. We're more disconnected. We're living way more of our life online. And I think we all learned or are still learning, I guess, as you and I talk on Zoom, right? <laughs> it's great, but it like viscerally doesn't create the same feeling of being with someone in person, it doesn't like feed our nervous system in the same way. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, it wasn't until I actually stopped drinking for like long periods of time that I realized how everywhere alcohol is in the media. Like yeah. every TV show you could possibly watch. Cause it just, it felt normal to me before. I was like, oh yeah, of course they're right. having margaritas you don't or whatever. It was shocking to me. It was actually shocking how much drinking there actually is on TV. It's sneaky, you know, and it's not, I think, even the overt. I mean, obviously, it's easy to pay attention to, like, the partying and going out and stuff like that that happens. But I think the most shocking thing for me is every main character, typically, that's going through something difficult yeah. <laughs> drinks by themselves often to deal with it. Women drink wine by themselves. Yeah men pour a glass of scotch or whatever. And that's just what is it. And we're taught that like alcohol is how you deal with your emotions. <laughs> I need a drink, right? That's what, you know, it's what we're yeah. taught. It's what we see families do. We grow up and thinking that's what it is to be an adult. 
And I think we can't wait. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious for someone listening to this who's learned that and that's their go-to. They have a stressful day at work and then they come home and pour themselves a glass of wine. What were some of the things that you started to do instead? Like, And I think knowing too that sometimes when you first start modifying your behavior, it's not going to feel as good. Like we go Absolutely. to the wine because it's fast, it works. We know yeah. it's predictable, like it's going to do the thing that we want it to do, at least temporarily. But what were some things that helped you start to engage with that differently? Yeah. So one of the things that I did, because I was kind of, well, I didn't drink every day. I was definitely, I thought it was very grown up <laughs> to like drink wine <laughs> by myself at the end of the day if I had a hard day. Um, and one of the things that really helped me was recognizing that, yes, the wine was providing something for me, but it was also like the ritual of unwinding, getting a nice glass out, pouring it like this whole, your brain starts to also crave the reward in terms of habit reward before you even ingest the substance. We know that. And so even just like creating small rituals, I think can be really, really helpful. Even if it looks like having a seltzer when you get home and putting it in a nice glass, you know, making a cup of tea, doing something. Sometimes it's not even the substance we crave. It is like the moment of unwinding, of pausing, of presence, of, you know, having a clear end to our day. So sometimes... People do that by like taking a shower or taking a bath or, um, you know, changing into their clothes that aren't, you know, regular clothes at the end of the day, going for a walk, but creating some type of ritual, especially if you're kind of in the habit of drinking often, like a few times a week or more than that. I think that's a really helpful thing to do. Yeah, I would say never underestimate how much you might just like drinking out of a wine glass. <laughs> like I didn't totally. realize that was such a thing for me. I was like, it's pretty. I like the shape of it. It's so nice. It was like, I just started putting other things in wine glasses and I was like, I yeah. just like drinking out of a wine glass. <laughs> I completely agree. I don't know what it is about it. You like drink slower. Um, there's also amazing like mocktail and sober alcohol-free alternatives now. I like think it's a personal preference and I want to make sure, you know, if someone was in a heavy habit of drinking a lot, it might be something they want to wait on, um, until like, you know, they have more time and things like that and they make sure that it's not triggering. But for me, it's, it's something that I like love that really helps me feel connected. It's something... I get embarrassed to ask sometimes, so my husband who drinks will ask because he doesn't care. (laughs) And he'll, like, order mocktails with me. It's been really cool to see at restaurants and things like that. I've seen a big shift, and there's a lot more, at least where I live in Philadelphia, um, alcohol-free, you know, options on a menu. I've noticed that, too. Yeah, and I could see how it could be potentially triggering. Like, somebody made me a mocktail that tasted just like an old-fashioned the other day. Yes, I would never personally, I think it's up to people, but I am not interested in the like alcohol-free spirits that are meant to taste like tequila or whiskey or whatever. Um, I'm more interested in like fruity, fun (laughs) things that just taste like good drinks. Yes. Yeah, I hear you. 
Yeah. Something I, I do want to make sure that we have time to go back to a little bit. Um, Cause this was something that, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking about this from my past self perspective. Something I was in denial about for a very long time was just how linked my relapses were with bulimia and drinking. I did not want to acknowledge that because I didn't want to deal with the not drinking part. Like trying to deal with eating disorder felt like enough. Yes. And so, yeah, I just sort of stayed in denial for a long period of time. But eventually I had to kind of come to grips with the fact that, hey, like when you drink a certain amount, this almost always happens. Yeah. And so I'd just be curious to hear you talk a little bit more about what's happening for people with that and in your own experience with that, if you're willing to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, the same thing happened for me and I think it's a little different. I think bulimia is also because I like purged. So it's a specific, I think like habit too, where, um, I think it's a little less, uh, likely that you might traditionally relapse necessarily if you have a different type of eating disorder that doesn't have a really specific uh, behavior that you know if you've engaged it's a relapse Um, and also right like getting sick when you're drinking also can be intertwined too so that makes it more messy Um, but yeah I, I experienced something very similar to you where I was really frustrated by it and I think it's something I see in my professional work a lot too um, when I'm working with people that have both. And I think a big thing is we often when we get drunk or often when we um, drink and our our brain goes offline. And if you think about it as, you know, we say alcohol lowers your inhibitions. And sometimes I think it's important to remember that our inhibitions are there for a reason. <laughs> you know, yeah, our point. inhibitions aren't always something we want to lower. <laughs> Yes, they can feel good when we have anxiety or something like that. But, you know, your inhibitions also kind of decide if this isn't a safe place to be or if this person is creeping you out or, you know, if you want to not engage in a relapse. And that, I think, for me is really where the overlap is, is a lot of times once those inhibitions aren't there, we can act out in ways that aren't in alignment with our values. We act out in ways that we have before that are like automatic. And I think if we've been in the habit of doing that, it's really hard to not fall into old patterns of behavior that you're trying to change once your conscious brain isn't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're kind of operating subconsciously when you get drunk. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, that's such a good point. I've never heard anybody explain it in quite that way, but it's true. It's like our inhibitions are there for a reason. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, they're a little bit of a bummer. Like if you're feeling too scared to talk to somebody that you want to talk to, but yeah, there's this whole safety component. I mean, I certainly got myself into some really dicey situations. Me too. Very dicey. Because my intuition was offline. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe I'm like dancing on tables and being fun, but I'm also not able to really look out for danger in my surroundings. And that's something that I personally want to keep online. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is where we confuse, you know, lowering social anxiety, reducing some of our, you know, 
like we we compound that as that's fun, like nice. as that is wild. And while I understand the context of that, I think that it is important to talk about and for people to think about how like you're not actually more fun when you're drunk. You're just not there. <laughs> like yeah. your conscious brain that's like thinking about things is just not present. So you just probably do what you're told. You probably do what other people are doing. If you have an idea, you don't question it. You don't think, is this table going to support me? (laughs) Or am I going to break my ankle? Right? You just, an idea pops into your head and you like follow it a lot of times or someone has an idea and you follow that. Um, So it's not, I really dislike the concept too. I think that can get portrayed in the media that who you really are is when you're drunk. This like weird, you know, that concept. And again, it's just like, no, it's just that that, (laughs) that was your inhibition. Like your inhibitions um, are just not present. Like the things that are keeping you safe, your things that, you know, people say like you are more honest when you're drunk and that's not true. It's just that, like I said, tons of things I didn't mean when I was drunk. I did things. And I think that's where it's important to recognize that like, who we are is also what we care about, what we do, what we value. And that was so vital in me rebuilding when I had no confidence and I really hated myself. It was the only thing I could cling on to because I had so much shame. And I think shame is a really overlapping factor of all of this also Mm -hmm. is, you know, or you have automatic thoughts. I thought I was a bad person if I had an automatic thought or said something I didn't mean. And Really, who we are is what we do, what we say, what we take action on, what we believe in, and that can change. And I think coming away from, you know, we create who we are in that sense versus this is who we are and it's a static thing that gets uncovered. Yeah, that's so important. I think... (laughs) I don't know if this was your experience too, but in, in eating disorder recovery and even in working through my relationship with alcohol, it just took up so much space in my mind. There wasn't a ton of room for me to think about what I valued and what was meaningful to me and what I wanted to be doing with my time on earth and how I wanted to be engaging with the people in my life. Like there was just so much headspace and energy and time that was consumed by these other things. And part of the the challenge, but also the benefit of recovery is like starting to rearrange that, that pie chart so that <laughs> recovery takes up less and less space and we can start to focus more on things that actually really, really matter. Absolutely. Because yeah, to your point, I don't think that we often, I didn't have time to, I was so right? I was so reactive to life. I was just putting out every fire. I had no time to proactively think about what I wanted to do or the life that I I wanted because I was just running around trying to (laughs) see if people were mad at me and repair things. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Something I want to make sure we talk about as well you know, I'm imagining there might be some people listening to this who don't necessarily struggle so much themselves, but chances are know somebody who is and like want to have a better understanding of how to be supportive and not like ask questions that sort of suggest like, why aren't you drinking? (laughs) Those kinds of questions. Um, What are some ways that people can start to 
just reflect on their own relationship with alcohol and how that may be impacting how they're showing up for their friends who are struggling? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think I think one of the best things you can do is like so often the dreaded question that you get when you say you're not drinking is why. And the best thing you can do is not say why. When someone <laughs> says they're not drinking, you can just say, okay, and ask if there's something else that they would like to drink. Say, this is this is like, you know, I have seltzer in the fridge. I have soda in the fridge. It's simple, but one of the most supportive things you can do is have a non-alcoholic beverage besides water yes. available for someone. Um, making sure there's food so it's not that you're only serving, you know, alcohol. Um, I think also like when you think about events, trying to plan or think about events where alcohol is not the only focus. There's plenty of things you can do that don't only revolve around alcohol. You can go to a great restaurant. You can, you know, go see a play or a movie or have a picnic or go to someone's house or whatever that doesn't you know, that is different than going beer tasting or going, right. you know, <laughs> to a winery. <laughs> yeah. So those are some small things. I do think it's hard that it's not something we can make someone else, you know, do. Um, so, you know, you can support someone, be there for them, offer suggestions and, and resources, um, but a lot of times people will reach out to me and say, how can I make this person stop drinking? And it's mm. it's not something that we can support, but we can't make anyone do anything, really. Yeah, that is important. It's so hard. I mean, I've been on both sides of this. I've seen people really spiraling because of their drinking. And it's it's so hard to feel helpless in that situation. And yeah, it's just unfortunately true that if somebody wants to keep doing it and doesn't see a reason to change their the likelihood that they're going to do that is almost zero yeah unless it's at a point where they need to go you know get inpatient right. treatment or something like that that's definitely something you can support someone with but high functioning you know alcohol use is extremely common and very easy to kind of continue for someone's whole life if they want. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that I'm, I'm interested in here. It's like, there are so many people who probably drink every single night, but are still extremely high functioning in terms of their work life. Yeah. And maybe their personal life too. At what point do you feel like there's something to look at or there might be something to address. Is it really, do you see it as being entirely up to the individual or do you feel like there's a certain threshold at which it's like, okay, there's probably something going on here? Um, I mean, I think, I think first my whole thing is I think anyone for any reason should be able to question their relationship yeah. with alcohol. So I love kind of flipping it and sometimes asking people, would your life be better if you didn't drink alcohol? Mm. Um, and I, I think it is important to think about what alcohol provides because it does provide something and it also costs us things. So my general recommendation, and I have a lot of exercises in my book for breaking this down, is thinking about what are the, you know, what are the benefits that I get from drinking? What does it cost me? 
In general, I would say that when your alcohol use starts impacting your work, your relationships, your mental health, your physical health, goals, things that are important to you, you sacrifice your values. Um, those are really big, I think, red flags that you might want to look and question your relationship with alcohol. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And then something else that I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on things like sober October and dry January? Do you feel like those help people re-examine their relationship with alcohol or, cause I I've, I'll just speak for myself. There were periods of time yeah. where I would use sober October as sort of a way to prove to myself that I didn't have a problem when I actually did. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was sort of this like feat of strength, like, okay, I'm going to muscle through this for this one month, but then I would immediately go back to drinking just as I had been before. So I would just be interested if you have any thoughts on these practices. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I have conflicting thoughts over it. I think it's been nice to see it at least talked about. It's more of kind of like this media thing that seems to happen now, which is really good in terms of just, I like seeing any sober, sober curious content that exists. I think it helps, you know, destigmatize it. I do think a lot of people approach it similar to you, um, similar to what I used to do of, you know, really muscling through it, not actually taking time to be curious about your relationship with alcohol, not doing any, you know, uh, you know, introspection or examination or, anything like that, I think it's not going to do much if you don't actually think about your relationship right. with alcohol, like in that sense. And I, I don't love that it often is tied with like losing weight mm. and, uh, a diet or a cleanse or something like that. And that for me is where it gets dicey as well. Um, but I do think it's really helpful if someone is exploring their relationship with alcohol, I do recommend taking a break. Um, just because I think it is really hard to fully understand how much better you could feel <laughs> if you don't yeah. take a break. Um, you know, like moderation can definitely help. But my whole thing too is to be able to fully choose and have freedom around whether you drink or not, you have to be able to not be dependent on it in some capacity. So if you're still using it to learn how to, or if you're still relying on it for socializing, to deal with your emotions, to avoid setting boundaries, to deal with your family over the holidays, to bond with your boss at work, to have sex, whatever these things are, you're always going to be dependent on it in some way, even if you're not physically dependent. And therefore that robs you of choice. Mm -hmm. To be able to choose something, we have to freely choose it and or not. But if we're dependent on it, we can't not in some capacity. So it's <laughs> yeah. skewed. So my recommendation for people who is that they take a break, they examine their relationship with it, they get curious about it, they build the skills to learn how to cope with their emotions, essentially to reparent themselves is what I frame it as in the book, you know, engage in self-care, set boundaries, learn emotional regulation skills, work through trauma, all those things, um, socialize. And then from there, slowly integrate it back into your life, starting with, you know, maybe positive occasions, doing some of those tips that I listed and see if it's worth it. 
-hmm. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe you discover sometimes it's worth it. Maybe you discover sometimes it's not. Yeah. And I think everyone's probably going to be so different. Like something I used to really wish, I don't know if it's my Scottish genes or what, but like, I don't feel that physically different (laughs) if I don't, but if I, but I definitely feel emotionally different. Yes. And that was where, because I I think part of it, when I first started doing that, I was expecting to feel physically quite different, that I would have all this energy all of a sudden. And I like, everything would be like so much better on that front. And And I think that's because it's sold that way. Like so often it's sold as take a break from drinking you will lose weight. You'll right. have clear skin. You'll be glowing. <laughs> exactly. Like, None of those things happened. <laughs> and yeah, but like you're gonna have less anxiety. I exactly. You that. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. I really underestimated that aspect of it because I think, like you're saying, I had a lot of expectations about the physical benefits, and even I was still kind of in a lot of disordered ways of thinking in general, when I first started experimenting with taking breaks from alcohol. So I think some of my motivation was really just to like, look better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (sighs) And especially too, I think one thing for people to know is sometimes you can feel way worse when you stop drinking just because of those emotional side effects. And because your body is rebalancing itself and trying to figure things out. Um, you might be like, I was way more tired actually when I stopped drinking because I just hadn't been sleeping well. So right. my body was like taking it as the opportunity, you know? So that's important too. And it's why I do recommend doing more than kind of like a seven day break because you need to give your body some time to also restabilize a bit too. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Well, there's a question I've been enjoying asking people recently that maybe we can use as we wrap up here, which is what is something that makes you feel hopeful right now, Mm. even amid all of the chaos that we've been experiencing? Mm. This is a great question. One thing that makes me feel hopeful that I've really, I think, tapped into in the pandemic is like art. Mm. And I'm not like, not even in the traditional art sense, but reading, talking to people, watching a good movie, watching a good TV show, listening to music, like art really makes me feel hopeful of, um, how humans can kind of take terrible things and, you know, sadness and all these, all this despair and make something beautiful out of it. Mm. Yeah. It's so true. It's like a testament to the human spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, and, and for people that are interested in finding out more about your book, so when does it come out again? It comes out January fourth, perfect, twenty twenty two, right in time for dry January. It is. <laughs> that is that is the reason. <laughs> awesome. Well, I really look forward to reading it. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's called Not Drinking Tonight. Um, it's available anywhere books are sold. You know, Amazon, uh, Target. Barnes and Noble, all those places. Um, and yeah, you can, my Instagram is at therapy for women. Um, and my website is amandaewhite.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you.